Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, and I'm very happy to have on my podcast today, Marianne Cullen and Elizabeth Dill, whose book, Open Educational Resources and Information Literacy, captures current open education information literacy theory and practice and in providing inspiration for the future. Mary Ann and Elizabeth, I wanna thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I wanted to ask you both first, can you just give our listeners a brief introduction uh, about yourselves? Um, I'm Mary Ann Cullen. I am the Associate Department Head at the Alpharetta campus of Georgia State University's library. And I have been involved with OER since about 2014. Thank you. I'm Elizabeth Dill. I'm the Director of University Libraries at the University of Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut. And I've been involved with OER since about 2017. Thank you. Now, as someone who's taught research in college for college students, and as a parent who has young adults, I try to advise about doing research, and I think I know why you wrote your book. I want to hear it from your own words, though, how you came to begin Intersections of Open Educational Resources Information Literacy. Well, um, I relay the story in the introduction of the book, but basically it was a very serendipitous moment when I was the library director at Troy University, um, I was assigned a theater class. I have an MFA in theater and was asked to adjunct a class at the last minute for a professor who had left suddenly. So the class was canceled for not having enough enrollment. And then the next day the class was back on. So oh, wow. I, yeah, <laughs> I wow. was, starkly underprepared and I didn't have a syllabus and um, but I was on Troy's open educational resources committee as a librarian so I knew of open pedagogy and I knew of open texts and I figured in this circumstance it would be really good to use an OER so basically I just uh, used the ACRL framework for information literacy, and I wrote the tenets on the of the framework on the board and explained it. And we co-created the syllabus together, the class and I. So it turned out really well, and and we used an OER, and and I was hooked at that point. So for our listeners who are not familiar with the term OER, uh, what, are, what is open educational resources? So some people just think of them as free online textbooks, but it's really a lot more than that. So open refers to the removal of barriers, whether it's financial, geographic, technological, you know, whatever. So open educational resources are open or educational resources like textbooks, videos, anything like that. But the, with the open, it means openly licensed. So the removal of those barriers of um, that come with copyright. So there's they're free online. Most of them are free online or there's a at cost uh, print copy. Um, and people can um, modify them so they can 
the faculty can adapt them to their classes, they can reprint them, they can distribute them, which are all things that you can't do with a copyrighted textbook. What are the differences between OER and open access publishing? So open access just means it's free online. So like this podcast is open right. access. And, um, but usually a lot of times with open access, we think of open access journals, which are things that normally would have been, you had to subscribe or you had to, you know, it's behind a paywall somehow. So open access just means you can access them on the web, but they are still copyrighted. So with OER, we're specifically talking about those things that are openly licensed, so you can adapt them and they still have a copyright. The copyright owner has just modified that copyright to allow you to give you a license to do whatever the license says. It's usually you have to give credit. It might be that you can't make a derivative of it. It might be uh, that you can't use it for commercial purposes, things like that. Do you think the average student understands OER or what are the assumptions that you've encountered about OER? Um, I think um, a lot of people don't understand OER, um, including, um, including the faculty. And so a lot of the work that, that I've done as a librarian is kind of explaining, explaining to the faculty um, how you use things, how you find things, um, information about the, the licenses. Um, I think the students mostly think of it in terms of just it's a free textbook, yay, I don't have to pay. And, you know, I can get it the first day of class as opposed to waiting until my financial aid comes in. Um, but, you know, when, it, when we get into open pedagogy projects, like what Elizabeth was talking about, it gives the students an opportunity to really understand copyright stuff in a way that's not just, um, you better have your, your citations right at the end of the paper or you're gonna get a bad grade because it matters when you're doing open access stuff, it matters. Yeah. Now, I think there's some confusion as you've mentioned you know, about OER and, and I think it often gets confused with e-learning. What are the differences between OER and e-learning? learning is a modality, a, a way of learning. And it's easy to see how they could be confused because most OER on, on, are online and so is e-learning. But e-learning includes copyrighted content as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, I've worked with faculty before and I often felt um, that even though they, they're often trained, there I think there's often gaps in the training. Many of them may have not have been trained regarding copyright for over 20 years. And I think sometimes they forget or just don't understand what the differences between different types of resources are. So faculty wishing to include OER as part of their curriculum must be aware of their resources and their permissions. Do you think though that they're up to speed when they're using OER? Um, I think it's getting better. I mean, and actually there's surveys of faculty every few years and it, the surveys show that they're, they're learning and they're doing better and they're much more um, in support of, of using LER, a greater percentage of them anyway. Um, but it does certainly range a lot. It's not part of something that they learned in grad school necessarily. Uh, some of that's changing now where they're, 
using OER teaching grad assistants about OER. So those are the faculty of the future, but the, the current faculty didn't necessarily have any exposure to it. So it's it's things like this and, and presentations and stuff, usually from librarians. Our librarians tend to be the big advocates for OER on campus. And, um, but you know, some faculty are totally on board and some just are like, you know, copyright. No, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about copyright. We're just going to stick with the traditional. Um, so there's, there's just a lot of misconceptions. Um, you know, some faculty can't find materials on their subject, um, especially a lot of the focus on OER so far has been on core classes. So if the faculty are teaching more advanced classes, it's, it's harder to find OER that would fit that subject. A lot of them are concerned about the quality, like they think if it's free, it can't be worth anything. But these, um, the, a lot of these textbooks are created by college faculty and they're peer reviewed. Um, OpenStax, which is a publisher, is the fourth largest textbook publisher in the United States now. Um, so that, you know, the credibility, they're gaining credibility. And certainly, you know, anybody can put anything on the internet and I would be suspicious too. But, yeah. um, you know, you just have to kind of do your homework. So, but I, I think a lot of them are, are confused about the copyright and the licensing. And that's where librarians can help. Now, I, go ahead. I think another issue is that some faculty equate OER with a lack of academic freedom. And um, they want, even though OER actually expands their choices, they think they're restricted by OER. Some faculty do. Oh, yeah, I've encountered that also. Now, I know that when I haven't talked to instructors and I've had to talk to administration about resources, including OER, there's always kind of a disconnect between the admin side, the faculty side, the library side, and then the student side. And it's kind of like an Abbott and Costello sketch, you know, who's on first and I don't know who's on second and nobody's really getting the conversation. What do you think the disconnect is between the library instruction, the faculty's use of OER in the classroom, and the student expectations? How do they intersect? What's the biggest hurdle there? Um, well, one of the hurdles to me is that, that a lot of our instruction is what we call one-shots, where we just go into the classroom and the faculty give us a minimum amount of time to cover. You know, sometimes it's not even a whole class period where they just want us to show the students, you know, demo to the students exactly what they need to know, what database to do and how to operate the database. So I, it's like click here, click here, click here, and that's the entire instruction. And we don't, we don't necessarily get a lot of time to talk about um, information literacy topics other than just operating the database. So, um, but librarians can really have more collaborative relationships with faculty. And some of these OER projects, particularly open pedagogy projects, allow us to work hand in hand with faculty and the students where we can introduce those information literacy concepts in the context of the assignment where the students are trying to find things and reuse materials and that sort of thing. Open education and information literacy have existed as education reform movements for nearly 50 years. 
Why do librarians still have to talk to faculty about it as though it were a brand new thing? Well, as we mentioned, there are misunderstandings. Um, there are just different opinions about OER, but also things are changing. Open education used to just involve faculty sharing what they created. Now there are large organized attempts and even publishers of OER textbooks and videos. How can universities offer librarians support for open pedagogy and OER? Um, so I think I think one of the main things that I've seen make a difference is when the upper administration, this kind of relates back to your previous question as well, when the upper administration is vocal in their support of OER, that's when the faculty really take note and listen. So when the way I got involved with OER is when um, our interim president of our, you know, it was a community college at the time, we've merged since then to be a university, but um, he was teaching an English class uh, just for the experience of being back in the classroom for a while. And his class was doing well. He had a student who was doing really well. And all of a sudden her grades just plummeted and he, it was a non-traditional student, you know, meaning older than the typical college age. And he said, you know, why, why is your, you know, what happened? And she said, well, up to now, I've been able to find the, the stories that we were studying on, um, elsewhere, but I, I, I couldn't find this one and I'm, um, I just can't afford the textbook. It's, it's over a hundred dollars and I just don't have the money. And he was not aware that his textbook was over $100. And I'm not sure how that segued into him learning about OER, but at a you know, big faculty gathering, uh, mandatory attendance kind of gathering, he, brought, he told this story and he said, you know, I want to challenge you to find more affordable resources for the students. So I'm not sure if he specifically said OER, but it was like, we got to get our textbook costs down so the students aren't failing because they can't buy the textbook. And that really launched the whole kind of movement within the college. And I just, I said, you know, this, I went to the vice president of academic affairs and I, I was thinking, oh, this is a great opportunity for librarians to get in there and infiltrate the subject matter with information literacy and, and accurate library information and stuff. Um, and I just didn't realize the other kinds of support that librarians could provide um, because we um, do deal with with copyright issues and find, you know, we're good at finding things. And that's something that you need to do with when you're working on OER projects. So, but also, um, you know, sometimes we're called upon to do instructional technology type support. Um, especially schools that don't have a real strong technology support program. We have, at Georgia State, we have, you know, a huge department of technology support, but not everybody's got 50,000 students. So, um, and then, you know, we have resources. We, in, in real life, uh, OER, the true OER with the open licenses are oftentimes combined with library resources and open access resources to to create the, the learning environment. So we can 
you know, participate in helping find library resources or even selecting library resources that have unlimited users, electronic, electronic resources with unlimited users. I thought I would add that um, it's really important and it's becoming more prevalent, I think, but faculty recognition toward tenure and promotion, that's really important because if you author a text, uh, it may not count toward your tenure. So uh, it's important that that accurate um, understanding of what's involved uh, is on behalf of, of the faculty and the university. Yeah, I agree because I was on, for two years, I was on our, um, evaluation and promotion committee, we didn't have tenure, but even within that committee, there was not agreement on how to count OER projects for the librarians. So, you know, there was one person who did an extensive amount of background research for resources to include in an OER. And some people in the committee just thought that was part of their job. And other people thought it was a service and other people thought it was research. And you know, having that spelled out would certainly be helpful to librarians as well as other faculty. Like, how do you count? How do you count adapting something as opposed to, you know, writing it from scratch? So, so having having some conversations about that would be good. What kind of supporting OER efforts do faculty ask librarians to locate regarding OER? So um, there's a lot of levels of support. So sometimes they just wanna adopt a textbook, like we talked about OpenStax a little bit earlier, but you know, just an existing OER textbook and a, a, adopting that for the class. Uh, so quite a, a few times I've been asked to just create a list, you know, can you find all of the possible textbooks that I might be able to use in my class? And that's, you know, once you know where to look, that's not that difficult to do. Um, but when faculty start talking about authoring or adapting, um, you know, it's finding the materials, helping them understand the licensing and how to attribute those things. Sometimes it's how to use the technology, um, what grants are available and supporting them and writing the grant. Um, and then when we get into open pedagogy projects, like what Elizabeth was talking about at the beginning with her theater class, um, you know, we can work with the class. So um, one of the chapters in the book that I particularly like, um, I'm not allowed to have favorites, but um, it would be one of my favorites if I was allowed to have favorites, is um, Christina Ryman Murphy's chapter. And um, this chapter, this project actually involved two librarians and a faculty member and the students it was a small group of students whose project was transcribing recipes that were part of the Folger Shakespeare Library's collection of I think they're from medieval times but they're really old and they're handwritten and that kind of writing that's really hard to make sense of and so um, one of the librarians was a literary informatics librarian. I don't know how many of those are out there, but she helped them learn how to translate them. And then the reference instruction librarian helped them do research projects that were related to those recipes. That sounds really cool. And that the 
the translations they did, you know, went back to the Folger Shakespeare Library as part of the the recipe transcription project. So you can, you know, they are contributing to the scholarly conversation. I love that. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. So I want to ask you next, um, in the book, it talks about the role social justice plays into OER. Can we talk about that a bit? Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, the most, the most obvious thing is the low cost and the immediate access to the students. Um, so it kind of levels the playing field in terms of not just those who can afford the, the textbook get get access the first week and the others either don't get access or they have to wait till their financial aid comes in. Um, there's, a, there's a study from the University of Georgia. Um, it's Colart, Watson and Park, and I don't remember the year. Uh, I think it's around 2017 or so. And they did a study of students in I think it's four different disciplines and different classes within those disciplines. It was over 20,000 students. And some of the classes had um, uh, OER textbooks and some of them did not. And they showed that all of the students as a group did better with OER, but the, the difference was even more pronounced for students that were in um, groups that traditionally struggle. So like Pell Grant students, um, non-white students, part-time students did significantly better grade-wise and, and, and the withdrawal rate or failing rate, uh, they, they, that OER improved those things. But the, the potential, the, the social justice potential with OER is, is a lot more than just that. It's, it's the, it comes with the adaptable nature of OER where you can incorporate new material. So there have been uh, projects where they have deliberately chosen OER that include underrepresented groups, or they have incorporated new material to include those groups. Um, one of the examples in the book is Kathy Swartz's chapter about um, um, her humanities class where she, she wanted to include more South American and Central American artists in her class. So she adopted an OER, but she also incorporated other open materials um, into her class. And then she had the students doing research and that with information literacy came into play because she had to teach them how to evaluate these resources. And she really taught them to look deeply uh, into what the author's credentials were and not just look at the back of the book and say, oh, he's an expert in this, you know, that to actually look at like, what was his motivation here? And she had the students doing projects that could then be put out into the world um, 
with those those kinds of um, research that they have done. Talk to us about the role student advocacy plays in the book. What can libraries do to better help student advocates in regards to OER or getting students to advocate for themselves? Well, I think you just said it. You need to get students to advocate for themselves and for OER. And in lots of institutions, they are doing that. They're writing editorials in the school newspaper. They're posting pictures of their uh, the cost of their textbooks with the hashtag textbook broke and so on and so forth. It's it's really exciting. And it particularly, I think, is impactful to administration when the students advocate for themselves. But we had a couple of projects in the book that involved student advocacy. Um, there were two projects. Um, there were, the chapters were Andrea Scott's chapter, Andrea Scott and Jen Hughes's chapter and Ariella McCaffrey's chapter, where they had student advocate positions in the library. One was a student assistant, another was an intern. And they had these programs where the students learned about OER and then in turn were advocates. And then there was another project that involves having students create videos promoting OER. How can we better train future advocates and practitioners regarding OER? Um, one of the one of the chapters is um, Shanta. Help me with the name, Elizabeth. <laughs> one of the chapters is Shanta Smith Cruz and Elvis. How do you pronounce his name? <laughs> I never have to say it out loud before. <laughs> say it out loud either. Back. <laughs> I always thought it was back. Known as Shanta and Elvis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chapter. Example. They had a grad. They had a uh, fellowship for grad students. Um, so it was like a teaching the graduate teaching assistants for the next year that focused on OER and social justice. And these these will be the teachers of the future who will have a much better uh, concept of OER and, um, and, and their potential impact for social justice. Um, and also uh, we worked with one of our authors who was helpful in other ways besides just being an author was Amanda Larson. And she was an OER librarian that, that her chapter is about working with other librarians and training them and, and being uh, able to help people with OER. So I, I have you know been involved with this for a number of years, I guess eight or so. And the OER knowledge is very uneven among the librarians even. Um, while a lot of the advocacy from OER come from the library, there are still a lot of librarians who just have, it just hasn't been part of their landscape, I guess. And um, so recently we talked about having an OER page on our website and I, we got a lot of pushback on that from librarians who were not comfortable with it. So we have now undertaken trying to get them up to speed to at least the point they feel comfortable talking about it and saying, well, you know, we, we may need to get 
somebody else involved with this, but yeah, I'm happy to help. One thing that we're doing at my institution here at the University of Hartford is uh, we have one librarian who's very adept at OER and has taken training and gotten their certificate and is now training the other librarians. So that's another example of the knowledge being passed on from one to another. Yeah, we this year we're trying to, one of our goals is to create a training program for faculty. We've been having workshops and, you know, kind of one-off presentations, but to, you know, really make, and we're, we're not the first people to do this, but to create something that the faculty can get a badge or a certificate or something like that to um, help train the faculty and, you know, give them something they can put on their promotion materials that say, I accomplished this thing, not I went to, I went to a presentation. Marianne and Elizabeth, I want to ask you, um, how did you both conceptualize this book? Where did this, uh, where did the idea from the book come from for you? Well, the book came from the idea that I had when hosting a class uh, that had been canceled and had come back, been reinstated, and uh, I didn't have a syllabus, I didn't have have any learning objectives. I didn't have any activities. So uh, being that I was a member of the OER committee on campus, I tried to incorporate open pedagogy and use an open textbook. It was very successful. The students actually co-created their own syllabus. Um. How did you get, uh, I, I had asked Elizabeth this myself, like how, how did that translate into you deciding you wanted to write a book about it? Well, because of my familiarity with the ACRL framework, uh, uh, I just, of information literacy, I just wanted to merge the two concepts, OER and information literacy. And there seemed to be a gap in the field in that area. So I thought, what better way to, to fill the gap than to write a book? And I went to Mary Ann because she was such an expert in the field. And I thought that the pairing would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I... Um enjoyed talking to Elizabeth. We, we did a, a previous project about um, where we co-edited a special edition of library trends called OER in the academic library. And that was, that was fun. So when she said, you know, you want to write a book? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, and, edit, and, edit a book. <laughs> edit, edit a book, yes. It wasn't, it wasn't write a book. Yeah, we edited the book. And the, the Library Trends was an editing project also. Um, but I honestly, when she said, I want to do about open educational resources and information literacy, I was like, 
what do those have to do with each other, Elizabeth? <laughs> so, I have learned. <laughs> I have learned now. It was the, the I I really enjoyed the editing process. It wasn't something I'd ever thought of doing with editing a book, but I really enjoyed it. I learned so much, and I really enjoyed getting to know the authors. What was um, the intersection formation? literacy has a tremendous amount to do with open pedagogy and utilizing open pedagogy to facilitate critical thinking. Was it tough working with the publishers at all or was it what was it like um, working with academic publishers? Um, working with ACRL was great. I'm going to sound like a commercial and I don't really mean to but they gave us a lot of freedom uh, they gave us a lot of support. Um, whenever we had questions, we got answers very quickly. Um, we wanted to, because of the nature of the book, we wanted to pub, you know, have an open access version of the book, which they allowed us to do. We wanted to have an open peer review, which we were only the second book they had done that had an open peer review. And so we even held an extra session for our authors so they could decide if they wanted to do the open peer review or not because they didn't understand it and I didn't understand it well enough to help them. Uh, so it was great. Uh, it's really been, it's really been, a, I would recommend it. When I submitted the proposal uh, to Erin Nevis, uh, she responded that the proposal was a bit lacking, but the idea was fantastic. And they accepted it right away based upon that and no sample chapter or anything else. So they were, they really put a lot of faith in us um, and we're very grateful. This question wasn't in the uh, written questions I had sent you, but I'm curious to get your opinion on this and, and we don't have to include it if it if it's not wanted, but I'm wondering uh, what do both of you think of the changing nature of the academic libraries, academic librarians role, like how it's perceived? Um, do you think there's been a lot of changes over the years on how academic librarians are perceived by universities? Yes. <laughs> Um, um, I have been an academic library since 2014, so not, you know, ages and ages. Um, but I, I think even within that time, or, or especially as I'm, you know, hearing peers talk about, well, back in the day, you know, but even I, I get made fun of now for saying, well, back in 2000, you know, so on. Not 2014, 2004. I'm I'm cutting out my own well, decades of myself, but um, I I think I mean from the students' point of view, a lot of the students we're seeing now have never been to a library. Yeah, they could they think we're the bookstore. Yeah, they they don't they don't understand the difference between a bookstore and the library, and they come in and they talk about renting things or buying things they're shocked that things are free yeah. um they don't know what librarians do but in all fairness i didn't know what librarians did either when i went to school back in the day i was scared of them wouldn't ask them a question 
it's amazing that I became one. I love libraries, but I had no idea what librarians did. Um, so, yeah, I think I think some things stayed the same. Some things are different, but I I think in terms of like the administration and the faculty, um, yeah, we've had to adapt. I mean, I think I think things. What the thing people usually talk about is that librarians used to be the gatekeepers. You know, it was hard to find information, and you had to come to the librarian who would find the tome that contained the information you needed, or there was this index, this mysterious coding that they would help you find whatever was in there. And now information is just so plentiful. Um, the librarian's role is more to kind of help you find good information rather than just finding any information. I also think the role of a librarian is to provide critical information and ways to critically view what's happening in the world. And I think that's a new aspect of librarianship, relatively speaking. Yeah, we don't have the publishers. It used to be the publisher who would filter, and which doesn't mean everything that was ever published was great, but you know, if it was from an academic publisher or something, you knew it was fine. And I probably would still go with the academic publisher, but there's just so much more information and people may just re believe what they want to believe, you know. What's different about academic librarianship now that you are very excited about? What are the changes you're seeing that are coming down right now that you're really happy about? Well, I think there's new avenues like the OER was not even something that I heard about in library school. Um, and I, I started library school in 2001, so it wasn't, you know, horribly long ago. Um, and like at Georgia State, we have a research data services department where the librarians primary job is helping people navigate um, data, understanding data data, I mean, it's data literacy, but also the tools like learning how to use um, in vivo and different things like that. Um, so it still relates to information and information literacy, but it's in a different way than finding books in a catalog. I really enjoyed the online part. I was the online librarian for a while, and I, I really enjoyed making videos and lib guides and all those kinds of things that those electronic uh, teaching tools were, were fun for me. Um, Elizabeth, do you have anything you want to add? My view of librarianship has evolved a bit to include aspects of, of social justice and diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And I see those as being very foundational parts of librarianship in this day and age. Um, librarianship is overwhelmingly white, to be frank. And yeah. uh, I think that OER is definitely an avenue to help promote um, diverse learning, diverse thinking, and uh, diverse 
examples of of things that don't necessarily um, accompany textbooks. For example, I read once that the majority of textbooks come from Florida and Texas. Yeah. And I don't know if that's true or not, but um, but if that's true, you can see definitely a bias there in textbooks that OER could help uh, alleviate. Well, Marianne and Elizabeth, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed getting this chance to talk to you about your book. And I want to um, encourage everybody who's listening to this to get a hold of, hold of a copy and to read it. It's just a wonderful book on this topic. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Bye. Thank you. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 